Uh, good morning. It's good to be back with you. I was gone for a few weeks. Uh, it's wonderful to be worshiping with you all uh, again this morning. Anytime we're away, I'm always reminded of just uh, how much I love and appreciate this congregation and, and getting to be part of it. Um, certainly in the capacity as pastor, but just as one of the body here is a blessing and a joy. So uh, I'm excited to be back with you. If you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 11, a couple taps or swipes on your phone, or if you've got a hard copy there in front of you. We're going to work with the first nine verses in Genesis 11 this morning as we continue making our way through the book of Genesis. And we don't always do this. Uh, It's a short passage, so we're going to do so this morning. But if you are physically able, if it's, if it's comfortable and possible for you, and you want to stand as we read in Genesis chapter 11, I invite you to stand up. This is what Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 says. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to gather together uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to gather together in in worship and in singing, to gather together around your word, to gather together in fellowship and relationship with one another. God, it's a blessing to be able to do that, to do so freely. God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that your, pre- your presence would be near to us this morning by your spirit. God, would you challenge and encourage and comfort and convict us, Lord? Would your name be great? not just here for an hour this morning. Lord, but would you give us humble hearts that long for your name to be great in all things, at all times, to the ends of the earth. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a scene early on in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow. He has arrived in Port Royal. The governor's daughter found herself in a rough situation, Elizabeth Swan. She is drowning, and uh, Captain Jack Sparrow goes in and he saves her. He comes out of the water and promptly gets arrested for being a pirate. And uh, a couple of, like, the Royal Guard bring Johnny Depp over to Commodore Norrington, who has all of Jack Sparrow's stuff, and he looks at the gun, and he says, no additional shot nor powder. He opens up the compass, and he says, a compass that doesn't point north. He pulls the sword out of its sheath, and he says, ah, and I half expected it to be made of wood. And he looks at Johnny Depp, Captain Jack Sparrow, and he says, you are, without doubt, the worst pirate I have ever heard of. To which Johnny Depp says, ah, but you have heard of me. (laughs) You get the sense in Genesis chapter 11 that these people from Babel or Babylon, depending on how your uh, translation renders the name of this city, you get the, the impression that if they were here today and we said, where's your tower? It, it, nothing came of it. You didn't make a name for yourself. They would say, ah, but we made the book. And so you have heard of us, right? Like that's, that's kind of the sense you get here in Genesis chapter 11, verses one through nine. And part of what Genesis, really all of one through 11 is doing is it's laying this foundation for what is the reality of sin. And part of that reality is that it is this heart disposition that within the nature of humanity is a desire to rival God. 
And so even though our tower might not have turned out as we thought it would, we did make a name for ourselves. Ah, but you have heard of me, would sort of be the sense here in Genesis chapter 11. We're just going to work our way through these verses. It comes in two chunks. Verses 1 through 4, like humanity, these people are the subject, and there's a narrator statement, and then they make a declaration, and then verses 5 through 9, God is now the subject, and it follows the same pattern. There's a narrator statement from Moses, and then God makes a declaration. We're just going to work our way through the text, do some observing, make, make sure we've sort of got our minds around it. Apply it for ourselves today, because I don't think anyone in here is in the tower building industry, so we need to, what does this mean for us today? And then hopefully we'll see Jesus through the text as we end. This is the spot where we're going to land. I'm going to give this to you now, and then we're going to have to sort of work our way through it uh, or toward it over the next few minutes. And it's that God does not do anything that does not advance his eternal purposes. That's a bold statement. God does not do anything that does not advance his eternal purposes. We're going to work our way back toward that statement. So if you've got... Genesis open there in front of you. 11 chapters of what you could call like human prehistory is what the first big section of Genesis gives you before transitioning in chapter 12 and giving you the specific history of the covenantal people of Israel. So 11 chapters of general prehistory before shifting in chapter 12 to a particular covenant history of Israel. In Genesis 10 and 11 are like the hinge point between those two portions of the book. How do we get from all of humanity in general to one specific people group? Genesis 10 and 11 are fixing your attention in that direction. And part of what that section of the book is doing is trying to help us understand the origin and the nature of sin. If you were to just ask your everyday sort of American Western Christian. Tell me about the origin of sin. We would rightly talk about Genesis chapter three. Well, there was Adam and Eve and they were in a garden and everything was good and God said, don't eat from this one particular tree and they didn't listen. They ate from that tree and there you go, sin. That's true. It's not necessarily the full nuanced biblical picture of the origin of sin though because Actually, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are giving you this broad, expansive picture of what sin is. And so if you were to ask like a faithful, ancient Jewish person to explain to you the origin of sin, they would talk to you about sin being this personal thing that each individual has and does. And they would talk to you about that by telling you about Adam and Eve. And then they would walk you through Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 8 in the flood God's judgment upon sin, but they would very promptly tell you about Noah in chapter 9, who comes out of the ark with all of the sin that he went into the ark with. So God's judgment there at the flood did not erase the reality of sin. The serpent crusher from Genesis chapter 3 was not Noah, and it wasn't the flood. Sin was still a problem. Then they would tell you about the Tower of Babel. Because when we think about sin, we predominantly think about sin as rebellion. Genesis chapter 3. God said, don't eat from the tree. They ate from the tree. That is sin. But the broad picture of sin is that it is rebellion, but it is also rivalry. And in Genesis chapter 11, you see this picture of what does it look like when the human heart rivals God for the position that only he deserves. And you also get a picture for the first time in Genesis chapter 11 as sin is like a group project. In Western American society, we think sin is it's, it's this totally individual thing. And that is true. We are each responsible for our sin as well as our acts of sin. But the Bible also makes it pretty clear that humanity often comes together in its attempts to sin. And so throughout the biblical narrative. You get the Tower of Babel, or you get Sodom and Gomorrah, where God makes a statement about these two entire towns, and then acts in response to that. You get the golden calf situation in Exodus, where the people come together, and they melt down all of their gold, and they make this calf, and they worship it together. It's collective. The idolatry of Israel before 
being sent into exile. It's talking about the whole nation, like they're all joining together in doing this. Jump into the New Testament. In the book of Acts, you've got a group of Greek women saying that in the distribution of food to the needy, they're being overlooked, not by like one person, but by the church there in Jerusalem. Then you get Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Ananias comes in and he says, we sold some property, here's the money. And the leaders of the Jerusalem church say, is that all the money? And Ananias says, you bet it is. And then God acts in response to that. And Sapphira comes in and she says, hey, we sold some field, there's the money. And they say, is that all the money? And she says, that was all the money. And they say, we know that's not all the money, right? They're in on it together. Sometimes we sin collectively, not just individually. And everyone is responsible for their role, and yet it's something that happens as a group. This is still true today. Like the pornography industry, that's not one person doing one thing and it's sin. It's a, that's a group thing. Whole groups of people are involved in that. You think of like organizational fraud, think Enron. It wasn't one guy who hatched up a plan and said, we will extort all of this money. It's a group. People do it together. Think about government, whole governments that oppress or do acts of injustice, or you think about racism and the way that plays out as discrimination or slavery or genocide. Everyone involved is individually responsible for their role, and yet it's something that happens as a group. And so Genesis 1 to 11, sin comes into the world in Genesis chapter 3, and the shocking thing that happens right after that is that someone, Cain, could think, I could murder another person, and it ought to be shocking to us. Then there's the flood. Then Noah comes out of the boat with his family and sin is still present. And the shocking thing is that humanity would think we could band together, pool our resources and our ingenuity and rival God together at Babel in chapter 11. That's where we are. So we're just going to walk our way through this. Verse 1, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. We don't need to... Uh, like try to stretch Genesis 11 to answer more questions than it actually does? And so is it that every human being on the face of the planet spoke the same language? Potentially, but same language and vocabulary is trying to express something there that people could communicate with each other in a common language. Does that mean everybody spoke the same language? Potentially. Does it mean that in the same way that for a time in human history, Latin was like the collective language. We might speak different languages, but we would gather together around Latin and communicate, or English is a little bit that way today. 7,000 different languages on the planet, but a lot of people speak English so that we can communicate with the same vocabulary across culture. It could be that that's the case. Everyone has some means of communicating with one another. And then verse two, as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. That word, east, has shown up throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis. As uh, Adam and Eve, after they sin and they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, God sets cherubim to guard the east of the garden because Adam and Eve go east. When Cain murders Abel, he's sent east to the land of Nod. We're told in Genesis chapter 10 that some of Noah's descendants settled in the eastern hill country. There's a theme that's playing out over the course of Genesis 1 to 11, and it's that as humanity uh, is more deeply entrenched in their sin and living in rebellion and rivalry with God, they're moving further east, which is like further from his presence and his blessing. And that shows up here again in chapter 11. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God in knowledge. Instead, they end up having to move further away from him. Cain wants power over life like creator God has, but instead he moves further away from him. The people of Babel want to rival God in their fame, but instead they're in the east far from him. We're told that they settle in the land of Shinar. It's not the first time that we've seen that proper noun in Genesis. In fact, Oftentimes what will happen with sections of scripture 
is that people will look at something like Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 and say, there's a contradiction here. Look, if you were here last week, Genesis 10, 70 nations, they speak different languages. We're told they're scattered out and they live everywhere. And then you get to Genesis chapter 11 and everybody's in one place and they settle in one city and they speak one language. Does Moses not understand how to write chronologically or is there some sort of contradiction here? So if you've got a Bible and you want to either swipe back to chapter 10 or flip back or just look over at the the last page, these these two things actually fit together in Moses, the author, has, has given away what's happening in these two chapters. Noah has sons, one of them is Ham, verse 6, Ham's sons, Cush is the first one listed, verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod, Ben told you last week you are all Nimrods. I was not here, so I'm excluded from that category. (laughs) But verse 8 says, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. Now, look at verse 10. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Moses is giving away what he's doing. In chapter 10, I'm giving you the 30,000-foot view. Here's how everything shook out in the early days of human history. And in chapter 11, I'm telling you how we got there. Big picture first, narrowed in view second. It's a similar literary tactic to what happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where some people would say, it seems like we got two different creation accounts. That's not the case. You've got the 30,000-foot view and the ground-level view. Now in Genesis 10 and 11, it's not that everybody scattered and then they came back together and then they were scattered again. It's that Genesis 10 was the 30,000-foot view of here's where we landed. And Genesis 11 is the zoomed-in view of here's how we got there. And Moses actually shows you where he's embedding that in the actual text, if we're willing to read slow enough to capture that in our minds. So we're in this area of Shinar. Then the people make a declaration. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. Moses, writing to the Israelite people after the Exodus event, they're out at Mount Sinai. He receives revelation from the Lord, writes the book of Genesis What would the Israelites, after leaving Exodus, know something about? Making bricks. That's what they were doing in Egypt as slaves. In fact, they cried out to the Lord for relief from their oppression because the Egyptians were taking away their straw, making it more difficult for them to meet their brick-making quota. So Moses says, hey, back at Babel, these people said, let's make some bricks. And the Israelites would have said, we know something about bricks. I know how bricks work. And then he, in the little parenthetical statement there in verse three, tells you what they used for it. Brick for stone, asphalt for mortar. That word for asphalt, if you're using a King James version, not a new King James version, you're using the thee, thou, thy King James version because you're smarter than the rest of us. (laughs) Yours says that they used brick for stone and slime for mortar. Moses is trying to heighten some irony here. The Israelites know something about making bricks. They know what quality brick-making material would be, and it certainly is not slime. And they also know what you would do with bricks. If you wanted to build a really big monument or building, you did not use brick. You used stone, massive stones like the pyramids in Egypt. You built small things with bricks, like the front of your house. You built really big things with stones. And you made your bricks out of quality material or else they would crumble eventually. So the Israelites hear this and they're like, these people are ding-dongs. They don't even know how to make the really big tower that they think is going to make a name for themselves. They're doing it all wrong. They're using the wrong material, and they're making their material out of bad stuff. This is not ever going to work for them. But building, making bricks is not sin. Like, human culture making and technological advancement isn't inherently sinful. It's in verse 4 that we find out what the problem is. 
And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Again, nothing sinful there. But then the last sentence, let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Verse four is two sentences, four clauses. The clauses work in like an A, B, B, A sort of way. A, let's make a city. Then they make another thing and there's a reason. And at the end, you get the reason for making A. Otherwise, we will be scattered. In the middle are the two B pieces. A tower with its top in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. It's the back phrase, the back clause there in Genesis 11.4 that keys us into what the sin problem is here. They want to make a name for themselves and they don't want to be scattered. We think about sin in a Genesis chapter 3 sort of way, rebellion. They don't want to be scattered. Twice in the opening chapters of Genesis, God has commanded humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 1.28 in the creation account, and then Genesis 9 verse 1 after Noah comes out of the ark with his family. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The people of Babel say, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to hunker down right here. Otherwise, we'll be scattered. That's rebellion. But then there's this other picture of sin as rivalry. And let's make a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. The filling of the earth by image bearers of God was to be the means by which the glory of God resounds throughout his creation. Being fruitful and multiplying image bearers of God was the way that God's glory would be made known in God's creation. And humanity says, nope, let's hunker down and not scatter and let's make a name for ourselves rather than proclaim and display the name of the Lord throughout the earth. There's the sin struggle. Rebellion, clumping rather than filling, and rivalry, making a name for themselves rather than reflecting the name, the fame, and the glory of God in the world. And then in verse five, the narrative shifts to God being the, su- the subject. And there's a narrator statement from Moses. The Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. God does not need to come down to see anything. This is Moses giving like human activity to God so that we can understand what he's doing. It's an anthropomorphism. The description is, continue, or is used here to continue to sort of heighten the irony. They're using bad bricks to try to make a thing that they ought to make with stone and then what does God have to do to see it? Cute tower, let me come down there and check it out. It's like when your child says with like their Legos or their blocks, like, let's make a really giant tower. And you as the parent say, okay, let me sit down on the ground next to you so we can make this really big tower, right? And like, it gets like knee height. And they're like, look at how big it is. And you're like, it's huge, honey. Yeah. (laughs) That is the picture in Genesis 11. Like, God's got to come down to see what it is that humanity is doing here in Babel because they think it's going to reach the heavens. And yet God has to condescend in order to see it and actually lay his eyes on it. Christopher Watkins says it this way. The motif of descent is intended to parody the heaven-storming aspirations of humanity. The tower, they think, will provide a divine elevator where a beachhead to ransack the very throne room of God is so small that God, rather than feeling threatened by it or needing it for his descent, stoops down so that he can get a better look at its thimble-like grandeur. A sermon on this passage that I listened to by a pastor named Jameson Noss, he said it this way, God always has to come down to examine our anthill achievements, which are built in the sidewalk cracks of his creation. God's got to come down in order to see it. Then in verse six, you get the Lord's declaration. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Verse seven, come, let us go down there. That's self-deliberative within the mind or the heart, however you want to picture that, of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. 
this statement by the Lord is not a statement of God like fearing that humanity's power and creative ability is somehow going to rival his as God. It's a statement about God knowing the human capacity for evil. They will destroy themselves if they continue to pool their efforts in their brokenness. They will ruin my creation. The glory of image bearers of God and the reflection of my fame and renown will not spread. They will destroy themselves. We've got to go down there and do something about it. We must intervene. It's like the picture in Genesis 11, 6, and 7 is triune God making that decision within his, his heart or his mind. And so there's judgment. In the same way that in Genesis chapter 3, there was sin and there was judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, there's a description of sin and of judgment. In Genesis chapter 11, now there's a description of sin and then an act of judgment. But it's not judgment like the flood. God said he would never do that again. It's a different kind of judgment. God's judgment upon Babel is a sin-restraining judgment. He scatters them. Why? To save them from themselves. I will stop you from your own self-destruction. I will intervene here so that all of your wild, broken fantasies of human achievement can't take place because though you think you want them, they will destroy you. And I will intervene to stop that. They'll keep figuring out awful ways to harm themselves, to harm each other, to harm God's creation, and ultimately to besmirch the glory of God. And so he, he intervenes. And his restraining judgment is merciful and gracious. When God acts in this sort of way, we often, the kind of like Christian colloquial way of talking about that is to say that it's hard grace. Typically, we only see hard grace or hard mercy in the rear view mirror. Maybe the way that we're all most familiar with is just the, the day-to-day process of sanctification. It never feels good. You want, your like brokenness in your flesh wants something and God intervenes in order to save you from yourself and it does not feel good. But you get five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you look in the rear view mirror and you see that it was only ever grace. It's hard grace. It's painful in the moment. Everything within you like, is screaming out that you don't want whatever merciful thing God is doing in your life. And yet you get down the road and you look back and you say, I not only needed it, but if I went back today, I would want it too. That's hard grace. Often through like the natural consequences of sin in the world, we experience hard grace. God often does not allow us the things that our sin and our flesh want, and it is as a means of saving us from ourselves. And he's kind and he's gracious to do that. We'll see the result of that here in chapter 11 in a moment, but just kind of hold that in your mind. Verse eight. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. I think the sort of like mental image we have of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the scattering of the nations is that like they're building their tower, God intervenes and it's like he picked up a dandelion and like, and people like, flew out to different places all over, all over. I don't know, this is probably like totally a generational thing, but if you ever played the game Sims on the computer and you got tired of your Sim swimming in the pool, you could grab him and just drop him like in his bedroom and make him play the guitar so you could get some creativity points or in the kitchen so he could clean up the kitchen so that your house could be nicer and not start a fire or something like that. And you could just move your sim around wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. I think that's the picture we have of Genesis chapter 11. They're building their tower. God intervenes and he just picks everybody up with like his little sims hands and he just drops, you're gonna go over here and you're gonna go over there and you're gonna go over there and you're gonna speak this language and you now speak that language. And again, we don't need to try to make Genesis 11 say more than it does. Our like Western brains want 
a chapter like this to answer every question about exactly how and when and why different cultures and different languages came to be. That's, this could have happened over time. God scatters them in some form or fashion. Moses does not tell us how he does it, just that he does. And that that scattering results in Genesis 10. Nations of people spread out over the earth, speaking different languages, known by God. That's the picture in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. The people stop building their city and their tower. What's left here in Genesis chapter 11 is this like half-formed monument or tower with like a partially built city. And the people of Babel end up being known not for the splendor and the glory of their tower, but instead for their sin and their folly and God's judgment. They made a name for themselves, all right. And you get the sense that in a Captain Jack Sparrow type of way, if a person from Babel walked in here, they'd be like, hey, but you have heard of me, right? Like, your tower wasn't done, sir. That doesn't matter. I made the book. You see me? I'm right in there. Genesis 11. Because the human heart is rebellious toward the commands of God, but is also rival to the glory and the fame and the renown of God. And that is this like big comprehensive picture of the nature of sin within humanity. We rebel against the Lord's commands and we want to rival him for his fame. Let's take a step back and try to apply that. On Tuesday, some of our pastoral staff went to Chick-fil-A and we tried to put too many people in one of the booths that I think is designed for like six children. Uh, It's definitely bigger than four people, but you can't decide if you've got all adults. What are we supposed to do here? So we tried to put seven in that booth and we had we had too many people and too many trays and, you know, as, as the trash is starting to pile up. So over the course of lunch, we just kept giving stuff to Corey. Like we gave, the, we gave our trays to Corey and then we started giving our trash to Corey. And by the end of lunch, Corey has a tower built to our fame right there. We're making a name for ourselves in Chick-fil-A with this mountain of trays and trash and debris and whatnot. You get the the sense in Genesis chapter 11 that for all of their efforts, that's about what the people of Babel had. A half-finished sort of monument that ultimately ends up kind of mocking them more so than it does proclaiming their greatness. As I said at the beginning, I, I don't think anyone in our congregation is in the tower building industry. I could be, you could be a skyscraper designer and I would be fascinated to hear more about that. I don't think anyone does that. But we, there are a lot of different ways that we try to make names for ourselves by constructing our little towers in life. The easiest way to think about this is probably career sense. If you're someone who works outside of the home, you give 40 or 45 or 50 or 60 hours to your job every single week. Look, none of us want that time to be wasted, right? Like, there's, there's no, like, condemnation in the fact that the things that we give that much energy to, we want to do well. I will be the first one to admit, when someone drives by the sign out here on the corner that says Liberty Christian Fellowship on it, there is a corner of my heart that wants them to drive by and say, Tim Fritzen is the pastor there and he does a good job. Like sometimes if you're driving around in smaller towns, you'll see the signs for, the churches, for a church and it will say the name of the church and then the pastor's name underneath it. No judgment on any of those churches but my name's not out on that sign because my heart cannot handle my name being out on that sign. I want to make a name for myself. My sin and my pride wants to build a little tower that people will see and, oh, Tim Fritzen, he is fantastic. We do that in our jobs. We do that with financial position or financial status. Oh, look at that house. 
That belongs to so-and-so. That is beautiful. We can even do that with our generosity. Like, oh, they give a lot. We can do that with social media fame or attention. This is going to be a generational thing. So if you're like older than a millennial, just this is your chance to take a break for a second. But <laughs> young people, like if you, were to, if you were to walk around a high school or a college and just start asking people sort of like, what would their dream be? A decent number of young people today would tell you that they would want to be internet famous. I want to make a name for myself. Be viral. Have people know who I am. Watch my content. Older people, tune back in. We can do this with our positions on like political or social issues. I want to make a name for myself within my camp, whatever it is, that I'm, I'm very much fill in the party name or whatever the case might be. I embody those positions and those opinions and like I do it vocally and demonstratively and I shout down anyone who's on the other side from that. I'm making a name for myself within this little tribe and within this little camp. Parents, we can do this with the accomplishments or the behavior of our children. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good parent, you know, see your child succeed, set them up for success and those kinds of things. Have them be happy. I'm not saying that. But when the desire in your heart drifts over into this idea that if my child behaves well or is successful, it will reflect well on me, now you're more interested in making a name for yourself than you are in just the flourishing of your child. And your child becomes your little half-built monument to your own greatness. Oh, he's so-and-so's dad. He must be a, such a good parent. We can do this with our social relationship sort of statuses and connections and those kinds of things. And uh, I'm really gonna meddle here for a second, but as followers of Jesus, we can do this with like our Christianness. I'm making a name for myself because I'm a good Christian as like our kind of Midwestern, generally conservative culture has defined a good Christian. And like I embody that and people look at me and they, they know that I'm a good Christian. I'm just out here making a name for myself. There we are, building our tower in rivalry to God so that we can make a name. I found this list of questions from author Paul David Tripp. They're not going to be on the slide because they were kind of a late addition to the sermon. But he asks five diagnostic questions that can help you sort of drill down to, am I after self-glorification here? His five questions are, number one, you parade in public what ought to be kept private. Think Matthew chapter 6 and the Pharisees doing their righteousness to be seen. We parade in public what ought to be kept private. Number two, do you self-reference at unnecessary times? Sometimes this is harmless, but sometimes you're in a group and somebody starts telling a story and you cannot wait to jump in with your story that's like a little bit bigger or like a little bit better or a little bit funny or, or reflects really positively on you. And it's just totally unnecessary. Like, why are you self-referencing right now? He says, do you talk when you should be quiet? Maybe you're interested in self-glorification. Then he flips that over and he says, are you quiet when you should talk? And the reason you're quiet is because you've built an image or a persona or a name on a certain thing and you don't speak because you don't want to tarnish that name in whatever social setting you're in. And then number five, you care too much or do you care too much about what others think about you? Do you parade in public what ought to be kept private? Do you self-reference at unnecessary times? Do you talk when you should be quiet? Are you quiet when you should talk? And do you care too much about what others think about you? Five diagnostic questions. Am I after self-glorification in this thing? And where I want to land kind of the application of this, you could take this passage and go in a lot of different directions, but the application I want to make this morning is that self-glorification ultimately leads to self-destruction. 
That theme is a common refrain throughout Scripture. You see it very prominently in the book of Proverbs. When arrogance comes, disgrace follows. That's Proverbs 11.2. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord tears apart the house of the proud. Proverbs 16.18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18.12, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. Shows up in the New Testament as well. We've already mentioned Matthew chapter 6 and James chapter 4, verse 6. James says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, self-destruction here doesn't mean that every time you self-glorify, you, you like literally get destroyed. The people of Babel were not destroyed in this like flood sense of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. But they do end up with this half-finished city or tower that if God had not intervened, was leading to destruction. And he restrains that sin. When we strive to build our own life in our own name, we're sowing the seeds of our own destruction. If you give your life to making a name for yourself, worshiping yourself, then you will stand in your moment of judgment before the throne of God and your name and yourself will be the only thing left to advocate on your behalf. And what's God gonna have to do? Get up off the throne and say, let's take a look at what you made. Interesting. It's cute. What do, we, what do you want me to do with that? You need something more than that. You need something greater than that to advocate on your behalf. Your two options in life are to live in such a way as to make a name for yourself or to give yourself over to the name that is greater than all other names. Those are your two choices. And the greatest irony in Genesis chapter 11 is that these people, they want to be known and loved and respected and esteemed. They want to have a name for themselves. But if you've carefully read Genesis up to this point, they already have all of that. They're made in the image of God. There's your name. What more could you want? You're an image bearer. The creator of the universe made you in a way that reflects his beauty and his glory out into the world. You want to be loved? Like he's uniquely set his affection upon humanity. There's your love. You want to be esteemed? You've got dignity and worth and value. And if Genesis 1, 2, and 3 like isn't enough to satiate that yearning within your heart, just look at the cross. How much dignity do you have? So much dignity that God himself would step out of heaven, not just to intervene and restrain your sin, but to save you from it, to pluck you from the depths of your sin into his hand that you might spend eternity in his presence. There's your dignity. How much are you loved? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's how much you are loved. You wanna make a name for yourself? Brother or sister in Christ, when you were saved, you got a new name. And that name is written in the book of life. At the end of all things, that book is going to be opened up and God himself is going to read your name out of the book. How much more of a name could you possibly need? Like the answer to your self-glorifying heart is a look back at the God who created you and a look at the cross to where he saved you. And we get reminded None of this is about my name. It's about his. So I want to end where I started. That God does not do anything that does not advance his eternal purposes. What do I mean by that? Whether your version of, your translation of Genesis 11 says, Babel is the name of the city, or Babylon. It's the same word. It's an Akkadian word, literally translates to the gate of the gods. And in the biblical narrative, what's going to happen later in Israel's history is that Babylon, the nation, is going to be the nation that drives the Israelite people into exile. But Babylon becomes this sort of like thematic reference or symbol for 
any nation or group of people who want what the early people of Babel wanted, which is their own way, their own fame, their own kingdom, their own renown. And at the end of the book, in Revelation, the image of Babylon is set up as this evil juxtaposition to the impending and coming and conquering kingdom of God. And so in Revelation chapter 18, verse 5, we're told that her sins, Babylon's sins, were piled up to the heavens. And that God remembered or knew of her sin. But then the picture that John gets as he's writing the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, it says that he was carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he was shown the holy city, Jerusalem. And what is the image used? Coming down out of heaven. You don't have to, you have to like build your way up there. Revelation says, that's coming down to us. And so it's God's judgment at Babel that ultimately leads to the glorification of Christ in eternity. This act of God in the midst of their tower building is restraining judgment, but it's also a launching forward of his redemptive plan. God is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. He's going to be worshipped and adored by a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And what is Genesis 11, or 10 and 11 telling you? God knows all those nations by name, and he's crafted and he's created them. Each and every one. And Revelation says that at the end of all things, the kings and the leaders of the nations are going to bring the glory of their nations into the very throne room of God, and they're going to lay it down at the feet of the Lamb. And in that spot, the nations will lift up their voices in praise to Jesus. And the end picture is not just that God has crafted and created all of the nations, but at the end of all things, he's going to have claimed every single one of them as his own. That's the picture in Revelation. And the diversity of humanity's cultures and peoples and languages, it's going to resound to the praise and the glory of Jesus throughout all eternity. God's going to put everything back together. And the praise of eternity in Jesus will be more beautiful because of its diversity than it would have been in uniformity. And so God takes this big step forward at the end of humanity's prehistory in Genesis 10 and 11. And he crafts and he creates the nations and he names the 70 nations there in Genesis 10, a picture of completeness and, and fullness. And at the end, they're all coming back because they're all gonna be his. Jesus will lay claim to every people, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And you can either build a name for yourself or you can give yourself over to the joyful proclamation of the name of Jesus. You can either seek to have the world glory in your name or you can join the world in glorying in the name that is above all names. Those are your options. The vibe in heaven, young people, we're talking vibes. The vibe in heaven is not going to be a bunch of human beings looking up at the throne of God and the lamb and all of his glory and saying, ah, but you have heard of me. No, the vibe in heaven is going to be every tribe, every nation, every tongue joining together and saying, ah, but we have seen him and we have known him and his name is greater than any other name. It is greater than any name I could have possibly made for myself. It is greater than any name that any human being could possibly have made for themselves. And I will sing that name for all of eternity. God will put an end to our rebellion, but he will also put an end to our rivalry. We have the seeds of that at the cross with Jesus and we will get the consummation of it when he returns. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning and for your word. Thank you for your greatness. God, would you humble us God, would you give us hearts that long to make your name great rather than trying to make a name for ourselves. God, would you restrain our sin, graciously stop us from our own self-destruction, we pray. 
God, glorify yourself in and through your people to the ends of the earth. Help us to live here in this fallen, broken world with all of our flesh and all of our sin, with the same heart and the same attitude that we will have when we gather around the throne in heaven for all of eternity. And that is a heart that screams out the greatness of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together. Good stand. Uh, two songs there at the end. One that's old enough to be cool and one that's like not quite. <coughs> um, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim. And the human heart says, my God, how great I am. As if that's the thing that's going to be left standing at the end. No, my God, how great you are. His name is above all names. How great. How great is he? I want to give you two resources as you go here. Um, rebellion, sin, rivalry, sin is something that we all struggle with. These are two books. Neither one is very long. If you say, Tim, I'm not a reader. One's 112 pages long. One is 48 pages long. Those are barely pamphlets, okay? You can get both of these for like five bucks on Amazon. And so the first is maybe like the Christian classic work on humility. It's by a guy named Andrew Murray. It's just called Humility. It's 112 pages long. It's really, really wonderful. He says that the key to Christian holiness is humility. And he, he gives that short book to writing about that. And then the other 48 pages long is called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. It's by Tim Keller. Um, and the tagline for that is that um, the key to Christian joy is self-forgetfulness, humility. And so um, I would encourage you to check out either one of those if this topic resonates with you this morning. Humility by Andrew Murray, The Art of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Uh, thanks for being here. It's good to see you all and to worship with you. We love you guys. Have a great day.